Hello everybody, thank you so much for coming to this show. It's recorded as a podcast, so we feel able just to sit down and read off notes. Sorry. And we record every single sound that happens. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to It Just So Happened. I am Richard Holsford, stand-up comedian and rather unprofessional historian. In this show recorded for the It Just So Happened podcast, we will explore some of the historical people associated with it and events which happened on this very day in history, which is the 7th of August. That's before we delve into some of the history of the place where it's supposed to take place. So, where are we? It's where Sir Sean Connery worked on a milk ground where Harry Potter was consumed, and a place renowned for its smell. <laughs> Once being known as Old Reeky, yes, it's Edinburgh! Really? We're performing the show in the Edinburgh Festival Fringe, the largest arts festival in the world. And our venue this afternoon is the space at Surgeons Hall, the headquarters of the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh, with its own museum, library, and archive designed by William Henry Playton, it's one of many category A-listed buildings in the city. During the Fringe, the space venue hosts four performance spaces and about 100 different shows. And we have an audience in the museum with us today, as the Fringe welcomes audiences of up to 400,000 people each year. So we welcome about one one hundred thousand <laughs> into this show. And what's drawn in such huge numbers? Well, let me introduce today's panel. We have Rasheen Kenny. We have... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Halalam Poskarandis, who I'll now refer to as Babis. Yeah, so I do stand-up comedy, um, and I am also a tour guide in Edinburgh, so I do all different kinds of tours, uh, general history tours, castle tours, um, Harry Potter tours, uh, and I also do uh, women's history and LGBT tours as well. I'm an improviser here in Edinburgh, uh, and I do improv. Yeah, Hello, I'm Daniel. I have a, I'm a stand-up comedian as well. I have a comedy walking tour of Edinburgh. Uh, it's uh, the best way I can describe it is it's like Scottish history with jobby jokes. <laughs> I have a, a fringe show at the Edinburgh Festival uh, about Mary Queen of Scots. It's called There's Something About Mary. So, uh, aye. It's on at the Beehive Inn. I'm not supposed to do this bit now, am I, Richard? So you've realised yeah. that. Uh, yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm, you know, I'm in that kind of just selling myself constantly mode that you get into. You've done a fly of them all now. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> anyway, yeah, that's kind of like my deal. Perfect time to see Thank you. Straight over to Rasheen for your five minute piece. Thank you. Cool, yeah. So um, on this day, on the 7th of August, in uh, I think 1548, uh, I should have written that down. Um, Mary, well, uh, a French fleet set sail from Dumbarton, Dumbarton uh, going to Brittany in France, escorting the five year old Mary, Queen of Scots, where she would live for the next 15 years. And uh, this was to escape from the rough mooring of Henry VIII. Now, in our timeline, this is like just a footnote in history, but in another timeline, this is one of the most important dates in European history. Um, so to give a bit of context, Mary was the only daughter of James V, 
and his French wife, Mary Guise. And uh, James died when she was just six days old, which means the entire future of Scotland lies with her. Uh, not because of all the political decisions she was going to make, no, because of uh, who she was going to marry, obviously. Uh, so at this point, Scotland is Catholic, it's got strong ties with France, and uh, Mary's mother is French. So the Catholics in the country want her to marry into the French royal family and strengthen links with them. However, at this point, the Protestant Reformation is spreading through Europe, and they have a lot of links, they have a, a strong foothold in Scotland as well, and the Protestants in Scotland want her to marry into the English royal family and to increase their links with England. Uh, on top of this, Mary is also in line to inherit the English throne because she is descended from Margaret Tudor and that makes Henry VIII her great uncle. So there's a lot going on, there's a lot resting on this tiny ginger baby from one way <laughs> So, um, the, because she's just an infant queen, we obviously didn't crown her at six days old, we're not ridiculous, we waited until she was six months. Um, <laughs> but after she was crowned queen, she obviously needs someone kind of watching over her and uh, this was the Earl of Arran, he was ruling in her stead as the regent. He's a Protestant, so he betrothed Mary while she is still a baby uh, to Henry VIII's son. Uh, the deal is that she'll live in Scotland until she's 10 years old and then she'll move to England and live there and uh, then she'll marry him. Now it's pretty clear from the beginning that this is a terrible idea. Um, aside from anything, you know, for a lot of Scots giving the English more power, not very popular. But also, so yeah, Henry and England were Protestant but it was a specific kind of Protestantism, right? Most Protestant reformations were like the kind of God-fearing no dancing, no singing, you're just going to toil the fields until you die and then you're going to go to hell. Miserable cunts. <laughs> For Scotland, that really appealed to people, because famously the most miserable of cunts. Protestantism um, in England is just about the king being a big shagger. <laughs> like, that's what it's all about. Uh, Henry VIII wanted to divorce his wife, uh, but he, the Pope wouldn't let him. So he was like, fine, I'll go meet my own religion with blackjack and hookers, uh, which is a Futurama reference, but it's also pretty much what he said. Um, now, he was also an insane egomaniac. Uh, and for example, he's creating his new religion, he needs a head of the church under Catholicism, that is the Pope. Henry's like, who's the most important person in the world? Me. I'll be head of the church. Uh, to put that in perspective, in Scotland, the head of the church is Jesus Christ. <laughs> so Henry literally bigger than Jesus. Um, so already a few red flags in diplomacy. And sure enough, um, shortly after this arrangement is made, Henry actually had some Scottish merchants arrested as they were on their way to France. And this was him trying to control the sort of trading links between Scotland and France. And to their credit, the Scottish Parliament were like, um, that's a red flag. You know, pretty narcissistic, controlling behaviour, feeling pretty gaslit right now, Henry. Uh, so they call the arrangement off, and in response, Henry engages in what's become known as the Rough Wooing, where for the next eight years, he sends his armies to Berwick and Edinburgh and basically slaughters the population. Because nothing says, uh, marry me, I am very normal, <laughs> like murdering literally thousands of your countrymen. Uh, so eventually, the Scots ask the French for help, which they give, on the condition that Mary will go to France and marry the French Prince Francis and um, that is what led to her leaving in 1548. And she stayed in France for the next 15 years, she was educated there and she married Francis in 1558 and she signed an agreement that if she died then the prince would inherit both the Scottish throne and also her claim to the English throne as well as having the French throne, obviously. So this is one of the big what-ifs of European history. If the prince had survived and she had died before him, that would have meant Scotland, England and France all unified under one 
monarchy. And if you just think about like the implications of that, you know, the English Civil War, does that still happen? You've got these two Protestant countries with a very Catholic France. What does this mean for the French Revolution? What does this mean for the British Empire, for the American Revolutionary War? Like it changes everything. Uh, but it didn't happen because the king was very sickly and he died very young. And uh, Mary returned back to Scotland where she uh, yeah, where she lived for the rest, well, no, she didn't live there for the rest of her life, but um, yeah, she returned back to Scotland and eventually it was her son which unified Scotland and England into what would eventually become the United Kingdom of Great Britain that we all know and that we all know. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yes, yeah, so that, uh, that is my, my whole thing. Perfect. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm going to do a couple of little segues between the acts. Uh, so I've got a question for the panel. Uh, William Shakespeare's Macbeth was first performed on stage on this day. In what year? 1604. Oh, so close. 1605. <laughs> Even closer. 1606? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, we have to be. <clears throat> um, although a Dr. Simon Foreman gave an eyewitness account of the first public performance of Macbeth at the outdoor Globe Theatre in April 1611, it was most likely performed at court before King James five years ill, before the king and his brother in law, King Christian IV of Denmark, in the Great Hall at Hampton Court Palace. Macbeth's famous witches appealed to the king's interests. James had a long-standing fascination with witchcraft, and he considered himself an expert on the subject. The action mostly occurs in Scotland, and tells the story of the murder of King Duncan by Macbeth, who wants to assume the throne. Macbeth is a Scottish general who has been fighting for King Duncan. Now, uh, there's going to be a series of questions which are all very similar, but according to legend, panel, what happened at that first performance? Did someone throw tomatoes, possibly? Did someone die? Shakespeare himself took it upon himself to take part. <laughs> Macbeth has always been considered an unlucky player. Actors have refused to wear a cloak or carry a sword due to the production of the play, and will not mention the play, the name of the play, or any of the characters were inside the theatre. But I just have to make some You have had Bad things are going to happen to Macbeth. Is there any actors in here? Are you guys doing like Finn shows and that? So it's zero fucks given, basically. We're <laughs> <laughs> not going to admit it now. Um, so what happened in the play's first production outside England in 1672? Similar question, sorry. Someone died. <laughs> 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 Someone died. Someone died. Someone died. <laughs> the Dutch actor playing Macbeth was having an affair with his lady Macbeth, who happened to be the wife of the actor playing Duncan. <laughs> so one evening the murder scene was particularly bloody. <laughs> Duncan did not return for his curtain call. Macbeth served a life sentence for wanting the innocent murder. 
Yeah. That's very good, Richard. I like that. I didn't do it. I didn't know that. What's particularly unlucky about the 1942 production directed by and starring John Gilbert? Go on, Richard. Someone died. Someone died. How did you There were four fatalities. Jesus. Including two witches, Duncan and the set designer. The set was quickly repainted and used for a light comedy. Prevent the lead actor in that play from dying suddenly. And finally, the Russian director Konstantin Stanislavsky cancelled the entire run of his elaborate production for the Moscow Arts Theatre because. <laughs> the actor playing Macbeth forgot his lines during the dress rehearsal, and in spite of signalling to the prompter several times, received no reply. The prompter is dead. The prompter is dead. Sorry for cursing. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I don't believe I'm not superstitious. Um, Can I give my place? <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, it's only to you now. But this is oh, great, great. Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, I'm going to talk about an event not that far ago, 1974. Uh, picture this, it's 7 a.m., uh, 7th of August, 1974 in New York. Uh, quite a few underslept uh, commute New Yorkers have had their commute disturbed as they look up half a kilometer above their heads a person on a tight rope between the then like, still in construction twin towers. This was very illegal. <laughs> <laughs> so Philippe Petit, a 25-year-old uh, French guy uh, spent about 50-55 minutes walking on a tightrope between the towers. Starting from one tower, he made his way all to the other, where now police was waiting to apprehend him. As I said, very illegal. And as he was getting close, waved at them, turned around, did another. <laughs> In total, he went up and down about eight times, uh, at sometimes sitting down on a, a inch-thick wire. Uh, bowing at the audience, pretending to have a conversation with the seagull, and even lying down on his back. My palms are just sweating, just, just a second. Um, yeah, I have, all in all, he did about two miles of walking that day, so at least he's keeping his 10,000 steps a day. <laughs> now, this wasn't the first time Philippe had done something like this. He'd uh, tightrope at 21 between Notre Dame and Paris. Uh, at 23, he had done things on the city bridge. However, these events could be seen as uh, warm-ups because his obsession with the Twin Towers started much, much earlier. A 17-year-old Philippe was sitting at a dentist's office and saw a magazine that was talking about the construction of the Twin Towers. Uh, in his words, the idea of climbing from one to, uh, from one to the other came immediately. So he faked the sneeze, tore the article out, <laughs> and ran away from the dentist's room to start the planning that took six years. Anything to get out of the dentist. <laughs> now, first things first, he needed more information about the tower, so he did hire a helicopter to take aerial views. But that wasn't enough, he had to go to New York. Now, Philippe was and is quite a passionate person, and with that comes oodles of charisma. So when he came over, like imagine the Ocean's Eleven montage, he came over with a crew. He already had several friends, his partner. But the more time he spent in New York, the more kind of people he started to like a professional photographer who inspired and joined him. And most remarkably, he recruited uh, Barney Greenhouse, who worked for the New York uh, State Insurance in one of the towers on the 82nd floor. He was so inspired, he made fake IDs for Felipe and his crew. 
using those IDs and elaborate disguises such as uh, journalists or builders, they were able to get into the tower several times, even at one point getting to the top and taking measurements, uh, pictures. On one of those occasions, actually, Philippe, uh, because this was still an active construction site, he stepped on an exposed nail, which pierced his foot through and through. On the plus side, apparently no one asked him for ID when he was using crutches, so <laughs> that's good. On the bad side, the wound didn't heal by the time he was doing the walk. So he did that with that going, which is great. Now, armed with this information, he returned to France, made that model, and started practicing. The 60, I believe, meters? Yes, 60 meter long tightrope in France. Now, a complication that the towers would have is that they're so tall that they're designed to sway in the wind. So to kind of emulate uh, that, he would have his friends just kind of constantly tug the tightrope while he did it. Uh, after a lot of practicing, he was able to do it consistently. There did remain one problem, however, the tightrope uh, he was planning to use was made of steel. Anything else just snapped at that length. So they somehow had to take a wire weighing about half a ton uh, up the tallest building on the planet at that point without being caught since there was active security. Uh, Philippe is quoted as saying, it's impossible, sure, now let's get to work. <laughs> so night came armed with their fake IDs, uh, uh, Petit and two others, uh, because it was three people who needed to kind of like hold the wire, made their way to the top. While at the same time, another of the crew ascended at the other more finished tower. Uh, a guard almost found them at some point, uh, causing one of the three to just run, uh, like completely leave the operation. The other two were undetected because they hid under a tarp, which was on an I-beam, which was suspended over an open elevator shaft while holding the wire. It's a crazy story. Uh, but yeah, they made it to the top. At that point, they connected like stabilizing wires, which were supposed to kind of reduce the sway of the main pitch, and waited for the arrow. Now, what arrow, you may ask? Because their solution to bring the wire from one end to the other was their friend would fire, would use a bow and arrow to fire at them, a, a small fishing line. Uh, attached to the arrow, <coughs> they were able to kind of grasp it and slowly use it to connect the tightrope cable. This took several hours. But at 7 a.m., uh, everything was ready. He took a pole in his hands, uh, step out, and made history. Now, charges were brought against them. Uh, as police grabbed him, the first thing they did was take him to a mental institution <laughs> to see what was going on. Once he was cleared there, they charged him with uh, trespassing and disorderly uh, conduct. However, uh, this was dropped if in exchange he would do a performance for children in some <laughs> <laughs> uh, The backstory to that is the towers were hated by the locals back then because they were taking so long to be constructed, and this was seen as positive media about the towers. <laughs> but yeah, since that famous crossing, Petit has done a lot of other fantastical feats, uh, one particular walking over the Grand Canyon. 1.5 kilometer deep. And I'll leave you with a quote he said when asked why he crossed the Twin Towers. When I see three oranges, I juggle. When I see two towers, I walk. <laughs> and that's all I have. Uh, so it's my second segment piece. Questions for the panel. Between which two countries did Lynn Cox swim on this day in 1987?
Let's go with Al
home. So Cox later recalled, the whole idea was to have this human contact after so many years growing up afraid of the Soviets. I wanted to open the border so we could become friends. So the moral of the story is, if you don't get permission, you just sort of do anything. Now, in the planning for this show, I ask all the panelists what they would like to do for their family and kids. And uh, Daniel proudly announced last night that he wants to do a story about the high wire attitude of Twin Towers. Mm. And I said, unfortunately, that opportunity will be taken. Um, but is there anything that you could add to the story? I think so, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, like, I, uh, to you, yeah. I kind of, there was a documentary made about it in 2008, so I can talk a wee bit about that. I'll just read you what I've written there. So, hi, as Baba said, the High Wire Act, Philippe uh, Petit, that is a high wire trip at the, uh, between the, the towers of the World Trade Center, making, by the way, every street performer in Edinburgh look like a little bitch. <laughs> yeah, you're about juggling on top of a, a, a flinging ladder when this guy's doing that. But uh, it, was, it was captured, this historic feat was captured in the 2008 award-winning documentary uh, film called Man on Wire. Which, if you're wondering, by the way, I was really disappointed because I assumed it was a documentary about Boris Johnson just handing, <laughs> hanging in the middle of that wire in 2012 with his yeah. daft wee flags, but no, it's not that. It's kind of like a heist movie. It's all about, as Baba says, how they broke into top floors. They had an inside guy. I thought that was quite funny that their inside guy was an insurance broker. Like, the guy is the most uninsurable human being <laughs> on the planet. And, by the way, his high wire act previously, he bought, he's, he's now done Notre Dame, Right, he's done the Twin Towers. I think the Sydney Harbour Bridge should be worried, by the way, because whenever this guy does his high wire act, it doesn't seem to end well. Jesus Christ. I'd be watching out if I was Sydney, do you know what I mean? But uh, next will be doing performance in Macbeth. I know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, completely eagle. Uh, and you said, I've written a joke, I don't know whether I should say it. Or <laughs> well, he probably has a C word. Uh, well, it is. He said, you said he had to do a, 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 an act for the children of New York, and I've written, thankfully, that wasn't the judge's ruling in the Prince Andrew court case. <laughs> but uh, no, you enjoyed that more, Baba, the audience maybe less of it. I think I can add a, a wee bit to this, though, because I took it a, wee, a slightly different direction, because something very similar happened here in Edinburgh in 1773. In 1773, an Italian father and son, they performed a similar feat here in Edinburgh, what they did was, uh, I don't know how what your geography of Edinburgh is and how well you know the city, but they rigged a wire from the Half Moon Battery to a tall building on the south side of the grass market. And uh, this Italian father and son, they spent an entire afternoon going back and forth on this wire between the Half Moon Battery and the, and the grass market. And they were like, at one point, they were playing a trumpet, they were banging a drum, uh, they were firing a pistol in the air for the Americans. You guys would love that. <laughs> uh, and yeah, I, I'm all As you, but I like, always think, like, in fact, you know what? Their performance was so well received that they did it three days later again. So they got an encore, <laughs> which I doubt we're going to get with, you know, Philippe Petit and the Twin Towers, admittedly. But uh, anyway, he actually, by the way, another thing that he was given as part of his, um, as part of doing his, his high wire act in the Twin Towers, he was given a lifetime membership to the observation deck of the Twin Towers. Again, he's not getting much use out of that, is he? Please but, use the stairs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, and so anyway, uh, I think I always think with these things, I don't know how you guys feel about it, but like, 
but these kind of like branches go out onto cranes and stuff and start doing like pull-ups at the end. I'm always in like a perpetual like argument with herself whether I'm impressed or whether I desperately want them to fall. <laughs> to their, I'm, I'm not the only one that feels that way, right? But what I think like Philippe was uh, really good at was making it really arty. Mm. You know, he's so passionate and he's so like this is his life and you believe it. And I think so. If, if you if you are going to build and if you're going to break into a building site and climb up a crane or crane or something, just put on like a French accent. <laughs> you know what I mean, and just pretend that this is your art. That's my advice for you. Is but. But anyway, no, aside from that, Bab has pretty much covered a lot of them. Yeah. Yeah, I do apologise for the I don't know the words. I apologise to the Prince Andrew and all the other inappropriate <laughs> shit I managed to say in about two and a half minutes there, but there you go. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I'm glad you enjoyed that. Did you get a pint after this? Oh, thank you, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. If you want me to, aye. No, can we save it for the show? Absolutely fine. Right. Because I did that, I prepared another wee bit about Edinburgh. You didn't read the instructions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there's a big surprise to the panelists out here that I'm the one that fucked up. Coming <laughs> <laughs> as a surprise to absolutely nobody in this room right now, isn't it? It's fine, it? it's fine. Uh, but we, we must cover the second half of the show, History of Edinburgh. We've got about uh, 17 minutes. So, our venue today is Surgeon's Hall, so I thought it was only fitting to explore some of the history of surgery in the city. So, question to the panel. When was the first legal dissection carried out in Scotland? I heard the answer yesterday. It's gone. <laughs> 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 Uh, yeah, it's, you have the same questions. Would this be, I'm going to go 18th century. 18th century? Aye. It was in the 18th century, it, yes. Yeah, it was 17th Was it Andrew Fleming? Well, I'm asking when it happened first. Aye. <laughs> there was a guy, there was the, the guy who, have I, have I got the right name? He invented anaesthetic. Uh, and he did this thing, right, with, in West Wooded where he, he invented chloroform, right? And the way that he did this is he, he drugged everyone at his dinner party. That right? was uh, Simpson. Simpson, James Simpson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, James Simpson. And then he went round and he cut everyone. Right? <laughs> this is normal for a dinner party in West Lothian, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> to pass out and wake up stabbed is perfectly normal. <laughs> uh, and then he, he woke up and this was him going, oh, look how well my chloroform worked. You didn't even notice. And so I'm making a guess that that might be the first. It's also worth saying they all had a great time. Like they were like, "Can we do that again?" That was so much fun. Like, um, but it would not have been because that would have been in the eighteen hundreds. Mm. It was because yeah. he was yeah, the uh, Queen Victoria. Um, yeah. yeah, it was like seventeen fifty-six. Uh, I'm not reading off that. It was it was seventeen oh two. Just just a random year, basically. Scottish law. <laughs> like all years. I mean, I mean, <laughs> question, can you guess the year? Um, Scottish law allowed for the purposes of anatomical research the dissection of bodies in cases where the individual had died in prison or committed suicide. Any guesses about, I mean, you're not going to know, I but what? So I'll tell you about the first person to be dissected. What were they dissecting? What, what, like, what part of the body? The, uh, the, whole, the thing. whole thing. The whole, the whole thing, thing. Right, okay. Yeah. Nothing goes to waste. So it was a guy called David Miles. He was executed on 27th November for incest. His sister bore his child, and the village found the corpse on the living room. The village in Fife. <laughs> 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 That's where I live. So Any Americans, it's like our <laughs> Alabama, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, even though they claimed it was dead at birth, the bloke was drunk and hanged, and so was the sister. So he was authorised to be bisected. But it's gone. They didn't really like do much to hide it, did they? Like, they just found it on the plate. Yeah, it's quite something. They hadn't watched enough episodes of CSI. 
<laughs> so no, no one had carried a corpse legally from the gallows to the prison table before. So what trade of person got the job to do that to carry the Sedan chair guys. They used to call them the caddies in Edinburgh. They gave them the caddies. I'm thinking like the wheelbarrow makers. The wheelbarrow makers, yeah, wheelbarrows, sedan chairs. I do remember this from yesterday. I I remember this from yesterday, but I remember that. It was chimney sweeps. Oh, yeah. Chimney sweeps, yes. But not before they were whinging about the cost of lead weights to hold cloth over the corpse so they could move the body to the city in a single manner. Even though half the city just turned up to watch the execution of the first yeah. guns. <laughs> How long do you think that first dissection took? Ooh. Was it like... Oh, I actually do remember. Do you remember this? Well, it's the first ever dissection. They're going to want to make the most of it. Mm. Yeah, 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 you don't want to go to it. I don't know. Four days. I'm afraid it was nine days. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> So different medical men from the world. What time of year was it, Richard? It was November. Uh, uh, even, <laughs> even then. then there, was, there was an open, the dissection room had an open wall at the back to keep the body cool, but even then, nine days in November, right. nothing like optimistic. Um, but they, they went through the whole body during that process, and all that they left were the big parts. <laughs> the boring bits. Uh, <laughs> yes. So, all for shagging his sister. Uh, well, yeah. seems, it seems a bit excessive to me, like, isn't it? It's a bit harsh, like. So who was Dr. Robert Knox? Well, I know this one. He was, a, he was a surgeon. He was the one that was buying the bodies off of the famous the body snatchers, basically. Um, these were the men that were digging up dead bodies and selling them to the medical school. They're known as body snatchers, uh, grave robbers, resurrectionists, uh, or ranger fans. It's <laughs> 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 always one. Starting to write. Um, yeah, Dr. Robert Cox was the influential lecturer in the University of Edinburgh's anatomy department. I'll just give you a bit of background of what kind of character he was. So he attended the Royal High School in Edinburgh and was remembered chiefly as being a bully who thrashed his contemporaries. But the university failed his anatomy exam, so had to retake it. Uh, after graduating from the university in 1814, he joined the army and was posted to Brussels, so ended up tending to the wounded in the Battle of Waterloo. In 1822, he was a key force in establishing the Museum of Anatomy and Anthropology at the College of Surgeons, during which time he set up his anatomical school and his famous gory lectures in which dissected these bodies as part of the research. Now, Knox was apparently obsessed with men's head sizes. <laughs> He measured the heads of men in Glasgow and Edinburgh and discovered that Glasgow men had bigger hats on <laughs> So what did he interpret this to mean? I remember this from the other day, can you see it? Yes. Um, the, the Glasgow men needed bigger um, bigger heads to like remember all their engineering stuff. <laughs> but the Edinburgh men, like their heads were like, all, all their thoughts were like neatly packed away, like because it would be more more neat and refined. So like it's for all their intellectual knowledge, and that's why they only had little heads. Um, <laughs> better at sorting their knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, he was also racially hostile to Highland Scots. To Welsh people and especially to the Irish Celts, he was openly advocating their ethnic cleansing at the time of the Great Famine. Sounds, like sounds like a lovely character. <laughs> uh, now, the Judgment of Death Act of 1823 decreased the number of sentences punishable by death, just as the need to train medical students was growing. 
So there basically wasn't enough audience to join the students. And that led to, as you've alluded to, these resurrectionists who were basically people who dug up fresh bodies to sell them to the contraceptive. So how did rich people try to stop their relatives being exhumed by these resurrections? What kind of things did they try Really heavy stones. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. And very heavy stones like that. So if you go around Edinburgh uh, graveyards, you will see cages down on the ground. And these are mort states specifically to prevent grave robbers. They also had, in some of the graveyards in Edinburgh, you'll notice uh, they've got watchtowers built into the walls. Mm. This is where they would literally like employ people to walk, watch over the dead at nighttime. It's where the term graveyard shift mm. comes oh. from. Uh, but it was a horrendous system because they would just pay off the night watchman <laughs> and then dig up the dead bodies anyway. So that's why they needed stuff like mort safes and, as you say, about the big kind of. The people had money, they could put these big slabs in front. Again, you'll see this in Edinburgh. It's fascinating. You walk around the graveyards, these big kind of stone slabs and more saves. It's really, really cool. Incidentally, Americans experienced something similar happening in the later 1800s and came up with some, well, suitably American solutions. So, for example, Philip Clover patented the coffin torpedo <laughs> in 1878, which would fire out a lethal blast of lead balls when the lid of the coffin was fired. Such an American solution. Yeah. <laughs> they, have, they have to get weapons into everything. Well, wait till you hear about Thomas Howell's invention. He patented a shell buried under the coffin. <laughs> so when the grave robbers uh, triggered a wire, it would effectively set off a landmine. Wow. Oh, it's grandma. Presumably destroying the corpse. She went out like she wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> she went into orbit. <laughs> so one advertisement for the Howell torpedo read, Sleep well, sweet angel. Let no fears of ghouls disturb thy rest. For above thy shrouded form lies a torpedo, ready to make mincemeat of anyone who attempts to convey you to the thinking They never used the word mincemeat. Versus America, I don't imagine. Wow. <laughs> that is properly on the nose, that. <laughs> So, let's talk about Birkenhead. Yes. In 1827, back in Edinburgh, William Hare was owed £4 in rent by a fellow lodger, an army pensioner named Old Donald, when he died. So, one of Knox's students gave Hare a tip off that he would be well paid if he delivered the corpse to the Knox, which he did, and he received £7 from Tension Institute. It was a lot of money. Mm-hmm. It's like a month's. Yeah, it's just... like one pint in the fridge. <laughs> uh, in a plastic cup as well. Don't you know, bloody Mary. <laughs> so what what happened then? Once they realised that um, there's some money to be made, yeah. they're making their own dead bodies. But they had to kill them in a way that because like if they just turned up on the operating table covered in stab wounds, <laughs> people might be a bit suspicious. Yeah. So they so, invented a way of murdering them, uh, which didn't show any marks. So how did they do that? Um, so it's called burking. It was actually named after William Burke. <laughs> And uh, basically, they would get them really, really drunk, and then essentially they would pass out. And Hare would sit on their chest, and Burke would um, put his hand, like his fingers, like this, in over their nose, and like hold their mouth shut, and they'd sit like that for about twenty minutes. If you're thinking of this for a role play, by the way, yeah, uh, <laughs> have a safe word. That's my advice. Maybe Jobby's calling. If you're thinking of a good uh, safe word, Jobby's doing a safe word. Mark's safe word. Burke seemed more troubled than Hare by the pair's actions, so author George McGregor wrote, When he wakened, sometimes in fright, he would take a draught of the bottle, often to the extent of half of its contents at a time, and that induced sleep or rather stupor. Burke and Hare were caught, well, Howard, I think, you know, had been caught in 
they were they were an old Irish woman. Mrs. Mm. Doherty. I don't know if anyone here Margaret Doherty. Margaret Doherty, yeah. yeah. If anyone here has ever tried to murder any old Irish woman, <laughs> <laughs> they're really difficult to kill. <laughs> <laughs> it's also because they were trying to get her drunk, but she just drank them under the table. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's true. Yeah, this is what happened. Yeah. Yeah, people walked in and saw the corpse, right? Yeah, so because it was a lodging house, this, this couple turned up and they said, Oh, uh, you, you can't go in there just now. This is a problem with the so this they, they're obviously then very suspicious like well why can't we go in there so at the first opportunity they had a look and saw the body of the bed and they shouted for the police so that's how they got caught and what happened therefore to Burke and Hare did they both get executed Hare turned King's evidence ah. uh, shot his pal in uh, so he got away with it basically. I think he just like did like community service, like just a small sentence, mm -hmm. and then he escaped to England. And uh, Burke was executed in front of forty thousand people, I think. Um, one shilling, watch. Yeah. Um, and forty thousand people. That's a lot. I don't know where that money goes. To be honest. <laughs> um, we should introduce half-time hangings yeah. in Scottish football. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe have the attendances a wee bit. You know what I mean? It'd be quite good. And then uh, his body was given to the medical school, whereas he used the autopsies. You can um, see at the moment in the museum. It's about skeleton. six meters that way. Right? <laughs> yeah, in the museum, in the National Museum at the moment, they've got an anatomy um, exhibition. You can go in and see it. They still use like anatomy lectures yeah. and stuff. Don't they? Still got the teeth in it. I went to a really good thing machine a few years ago, before the pandemic. It was. Uh, we have a thing in Edinburgh in September. It's called Open Doors Edinburgh, mm. uh, and it's this brilliant thing where you can get get into buildings that you don't normally get into through the day. And I went to I went to the High Court, which uh, might become a surprise to you guys that I've never been to the court before. <laughs> uh, this was my first time, and uh, they did this brilliant thing where they had like the advocates dressed up and what they were wearing on that day, and the judges and all that, and they basically read word for word. William Burke's trial on that oh, day, wow. and it was absolutely fantastic. They got like a wee kid up to come up and like bang the gavel, and, <laughs> and his defence was just hilarious. He did, like, his lawyer had absolutely nothing he could say. <laughs> in defense, yeah, it was absolutely fun in the court uh, in the court session part of the Brilliant. But then Robert Knox, who absolutely must have known, because you just got these two guys who just conveniently keep having people dying. Because yeah. he killed about sixteen people in ten months, but he never asked any questions. So he was. Um, there was an an inquisition, like an investigation put in, but he was found um he was found innocent under a jury of his peers, so all of his friends, and an angry mob basically protested outside of his house, where they burned an effigy of him. Do you see? I've heard. Where is his house? It's like Wellington. Oh no, no, it's down on. It's an old high school yards. Well, they can see the scorch marks on the wall. The mob tried to burn him in his house. He did have the worst fate, though. Apparently, he was. Inched out of polite social circles. <gasps> the worst. They've <laughs> <laughs> uh, been blackballed by the Tories and it's as bad as it gets. So the lodging house was in Tanner's Close. Right. It's just past Westport. Which yeah, yeah. no longer exists. Yeah. It's, it's under what is now uh, it's called Argyle House, that 17 months was just beyond Westport. And then, uh, uh, which leads to the question now we're in that area, how have Oak and Hare commemorated <laughs> Edinburgh? Where? Uh, strip club. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we celebrate our serial killers here in Scotland. Yes. Yeah. Strip clubs after them. After people who definitely killed sex workers. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> like, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. You yes. should introduce that in other places. 
I mean, go down to England and get a pint of the Dr. Harold Shipman. <laughs> Regular over 65 nights, I'd pretend. Pardon my... Um, <laughs> Thank you for laughing at that, by the way. <laughs> Pardon my Scots pronunciation, but there was a rhyme so close around Edinburgh, which was up the close and doom the stair, foot and bend with broken hair, broke the butcher, hairs the feet, knocks the boy that buys the feet. So, very briefly, what put an end to this drive to the graveyard? Legalization. Do you know this answer, Dan? Because I think I do. No, I'll let you take it, um, So I think it was they could uh, get bodies which were unclaimed from prisons and poor houses. Yeah, like any model government. Yeah. Um, and that, that actually freed up, as it were, 400 such bodies. Well, they had that arrangement before. The problem was that not enough people were dying. We hadn't invented the deep fried Mars bar yet. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, people in Scotland are still living at this point, you know. Um, I'll leave it to that. <laughs> <laughs> I love just throwing you off, Richard. I don't think I'm going to get invited back, to be honest. I fucked up the first bit, and now I've got the second. We'll start out for We have only one minute left, unfortunately. So, can we please just say thank you very much to our panellists, who had Rasheen, Travis, and. Just to plug what you're doing at the Fringe if you want to. I'm doing a show at the Pilgrim Bar from the 9th until the 21st. Uh, called Laughter O'Clock. I didn't name it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Does it have the song as possible? I put it in there. Uh, it's on a 4.15, which is not an o'clock. Um, I'll be handing out flyers out there. Um, uh, briefly, I've, I've got a show in here, which is uh, puns and one-liners at 10 past 8 each evening in this place. Uh, I am taking part in Ooh Ha Ha Ha, which is an improv show. And it is in Brewdog at some time of night. My show is called There's Something About Mary. It's a show about Mary Queen of Scots every day at 2 o'clock at the Beehive Bend in the Grass Market. Come see Papi Sale. So to quote Macbeth, I'll send it again. Uh, <laughs> come what come may, time and the hour runs through the roughest day. So yes, it's time uh, to say the end of the show. I've just got one very final on this day. Screen legend Oliver Hardy died on this day in 1957. So here are three quotes from his many movies. From the Sons of the Desert, Oliver, do you have to ask your wife everything? Stan, if I didn't ask her, I wouldn't know what she wanted me to do. Oh, well, that wasn't funny. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't write this stuff. Uh, <laughs> the second one, Lossie, Charlie tells me you're from Los Angeles. What part, Oliver? All of them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's oh, so that that's one's funny. Yeah. Strange audience. And the third and final one is from way out west. Stanley, do you mind if I have another idea? Ollie, if it's anything like the last one, yes. <laughs> <laughs> With that, it's goodbye. Thank you. <laughs>